Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. Today we're going to talk about the teenage brain. We have uh, two great guests with us in the studio today. One is uh, our our returning um, guest, Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor. I'm trying to figure out what kind of title to give you. You're Friend, friend of the show. Knows. Friend of the show. <laughs> Official brain correspondent. Right. She's a Harvard-trained neuroanatomist, author of My Stroke of Insight. And uh, she just this week gave a two-hour presentation at Bloomington High School North on the teenage brain. And also with us is Brad Wilhelm, the director of Rhinos Youth Center. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can join a live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. So, Hi, Bob. Hi, Mary Catherine. Joel, it's great to see you. It's great to see you, Bob. Uh, great to have you back. And Brad, have you ever been on the show? I, it, it's I'm been one, quite a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't know if you asked me on because you thought I had a teenage brain. <laughs> <laughs> Being in the state of arrested development. But I'm, I'm happy to be here nonetheless. Well, uh, you know, if the shoe fits. Yeah. So. Well, um, Jill, uh, you've been talking a lot. Uh, over the years, you've talked about how brains develop at different rates and different uh, different uh, speeds and whatnot. And so now you, you're into the teenage brain, deeply into the teenage brain. So give us sort of an overview. I know you spoke for an hour and a half, yeah. 90 minutes, and then answered questions. But what's sort of the overview of your research? Well, I, I think that the, the biggest thing is that there's new news in the world of neuroscience and our understanding of the brain during the teenage years. We all know that the behavior changes. So is there an anatomical reason for that? And now there are, are there's just wonderful studies going on looking at, yes, there, this is a time of neuroanatomical transformation. And when you consider what's happening is, uh, is you know, when we're born we're born with approximately twice as many neurons as we're ever going to use. Half of those are going to die away in the first three years. So it really is important that we supply these little people with a, a, a stimulated environment, enriched environment. But then for the next 10, 10 years or so, my life's all about me as an individual. I'm a little person. I'm little Jill. I'm going to learn to walk and talk and read and write. You're going to socialize me. You're hopefully going to then put me in school. I'm going to get music and electronics and all these things. But it's really all about me me, but my one obligation to being a biological creature is reproduction. And I can't do that just as me, little Jill. So the brain goes through this major transformation anatomically in order to be able to shift us away from just being where we're at during those early years and welcome to the teenage years. So coming from just a strict word, or more strictly inward focus to an outward focus, an awareness of self, and as well as an awareness of others and their importance in the world. <laughs> You're obviously a mother. <laughs> You're, you've been Guilty. on this road. Yes. Yeah, you've been, but that's exactly right, because all of a sudden it goes from being all about me to, and, and I become very integrated. I'm establishing a brain. My brain cells are there. They're connected. I'm creating a network, but again, it's about me. And so in, in order to prepare us for what is going to come next, it's like zero through 10. This is an opportunity for growth and development. Mm -hmm. But once pre-puberty hits, which is really about two years before mm -hmm. full-blown puberty, things start to change inside of the brain. And, and it, it, it's obvious in the behavior of, of kids. Yes, it certainly is. It, yes, it certainly is. Yeah. Now we have uh, Mary Catherine is the parent of a teenager. Mm -hmm, and, um, 16 year old. And mm -hmm. Brad works with teenagers all the time. For so, the past 21 years. That's yes. right, at yeah. Rhino's Youth Center. And so. There's a special place in heaven for you, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brad, I mean, how do, you, how do you use this kind of research? Well, uh, it, it's actually not news. Right. I mean, I mean to, to anyone who's been an educator or anyone who works in the f uh, field of, with adolescents, I mean, the, the, that kind of the new science that 
has come through. That's not news to any of us. I mean, you can mm-hmm. see you can see the changes. Sometimes, you know, we at Rhinos will see kids from 13 all the way up until when they graduate, you know, and they're there all the time. And you can see huge changes in how they react to each other, how they react to the world, where they're finding their place in the world, whether it's uh, – socialization issues or sexual identity issues or political issues. I mean, you see kids literally trying becoming adults right mm-hmm. right in front of you. And you can you can watch this transition. Um, so that it, it doesn't surprise me, Joe, what you just said is yeah. yeah. So, well, well I just gonna say what I love about this information and, and it is you know news some some of it's more newsy than others, but other aspects of it. But what I love is that it explains in a very you know, just as you said, physiological right. way, some of the things about teenagers that drive us mad right. are just, you know, completely right. out of their control. And that's an absolutely necessary developmental step for them right. to go through. And so I think it actually is very helpful from a parental standpoint to go, OK, well, you know, my kid wants to stay up really late and, and sleep really late because that's really what his brain needs to do right that's now. That's right. program for that yeah. now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think it, it helps for me, you know, because it's true. We've I mean, I was a teenager. I remember what it felt like. Mm-hmm. And oh, my gosh. But to know now that we understand at a neuroanatomical level you know, a couple of years before puberty hits, we have an exuberance of the dendritic connections inside of our brain. These little kids between 10 and 12, they're so smart. They want to learn everything. They want to understand everything. They really want information. They're like little sponges. And then the puberty years hit. We're going to go through a major growth spurt. What's going on with the limbic system? What's going on with the amygdala? How safe do I feel? How familiar does all this feel? All the the hormonal systems turn on. With That's going to go all the mood swings. We're growing testosterone receptors on our amygdala, which is our fear and rage. Oh my gosh, why am I so aggressive? That's mm. why. There's a good reason why. And and our kids literally lose half the synaptic connections in their cerebral cortex. They literally lose half their minds. Well, which half did they lose? Which half did they keep? How? What does this mean for how do I then pick and choose who and how I want to be? Because th- what that means then is we got a whole new garden here. What seeds mm-hmm. are you going to plant? What kind of an environment are we going to provide for our kids to be able to feel safe and secure so that they can go through this process supported by a community that understands mm-hmm. what's actually happening? So mm-hmm. to me, I think the anatomy helps us with our level of compassion. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And it, what you just said is very uh, validating for those of us who just Wondered if maybe we became increasingly annoying at some <laughs> random point in time. <laughs> well, dealing, dealing, uh, we do a lot of one-on-one stuff with some kids too, maybe having problems. And the most common one is there's some kind of problem at home. You know, my mom or my dad is making me do this or not do this, and I'm going to run away. I mean, most of the problems that we see are not really serious. It, it, it's the same thing every year, and <laughs> it, it's it's young people trying to make their own decisions, figuring out who they are, and the parent who has no idea what the heck is happening with their kid and wondering what happened to that 10-year-old who was so engaged and so exciting. Mm -hmm. And so the the parents have to adjust just as much uh, as the kids are adjusting. And usually it's very simple. Just, hey, sit down and and talk and realize you're both crazy. Mm -hmm. And and in a few years, this is all going to work itself out Mm -hmm. to one way or another. Well, now, you know, I think that I love that point that you just made that, you know, everybody, both sides need to adjust. And one thing about um, our educational system that, you know, has been my point of harping for some time is that I think that our high school students are always asked to adjust to the high school schedule as opposed to the high school schedule being adjusted to the, to fit their brains. I mean, I've, I've heard how many teachers have you heard that say, you know, I don't even know why I show up for the first three periods of the day because my kids can't <laughs> hear me. They're not there. My kids can't hear me. Yeah. So is there do you, is there um, a movement afoot from the neuroanatomist uh, community saying, hey, why don't you look at your school systems and look at how you schedule your day? I don't think so. I don't think that. That's the job of the neuroanatomist. I think the job is to say this is what's going on in the brain. And then how do we get different people in the community excited about that? You know, Mm -hmm. of of course, I've already had this conversation with Dr. DeMuth. She's been a divine uh, person for me to be able to work with in the school system on projects with them. She 
She's always been very supportive. She's inherited, of course, a system. It is our community system. And I think that as a caring community, we have an opportunity to be able to communicate with one another and to ultimately change things. Mm-hmm. But, but uh, yeah, so I don't see that the role of the scientists. I think they kind of did their duty. Right. You make a good point. Yeah, it's, kind of, well, it's kind of like, uh, you know, the uh, system of priorities. You know, do we want our kids to uh, – this is going to be really sarcastic, but do we want our kids to learn or do we want them to – run cross-country after school, you know, because if you move school back to start at at 10 o'clock in the morning, then all of a sudden all those extracurriculars after school, which are important, I really don't mean to say they're not. Um, have to something has to give with those. So. Right. But. Well, and and I think you know because I've looked at it from both sides as far as our society runs on an eight to five, mm-hmm. and so as long it, it you know how changing the school schedule changes the parent schental, mm-hmm. and most of the parents' schedules aren't going to adapt. I mean, it, we we have to look at ourselves as a whole society, and how does the system of society uh, manage to work it out? But yeah, it would be great. You know, uh, one of my favorite places is in Mexico. They use the same school room. They have the littlest ones go in early in the morning. Mm-hmm. They have the middle kids go in in the middle of the day, and they have the high schoolers go in in the evening. And, and you know, uh, for them, that works. Their system is completely different than ours, and I'm sure they didn't do it based on the brain. They did it on their own economical structure. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, it would be nice if if we could could. But at the same time, I think that we we can take some responsibility. Uh, kids who are sleeping with their technology in their bed, pinging all night, I don't think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for those who might actually make it into their bed by midnight, uh, if they're pinging at one and two and three, they're not getting quality sleep. Mm-hmm. So we're in a society where we don't value value sleep. And uh, so I think that there are a lot of things that we mm-hmm. could do to actually improve on the way things currently are. So if you have uh, ever wondered what goes on in the minds of teenagers or why they act and behave the way they do, uh, <laughs> this is the program for you. We're talking about the teenage brain with Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor and with Brad Wilhelm, the director of Rhino's Youth Center. So if you want to call us, 855-0811 in Bloomington. outside of the Bloomington calling area. And you can also join a live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. um, I mean, this brings up all sorts of social issues, and it also explains a whole lot. I mean, one thing that, of course, comes to mind – well, let let me back up a second. In your – the research and what you talked about the other other night is – I mean, the brain is still developing until people are 25 years old. Right. So, so a lot of it, I mean, it's not like all of a sudden you're 18 right. and, you know, you can go off to war being drafted or right. whatnot. You're not drafted anymore, but you can right. volunteer, go off to war. And you still don't have all, you know, basically all your uh, faculties, right. I guess. Right. And, and, and then you also look at, at students on campus. You know, mm-hmm. you wonder maybe why things go on the way they do around a little 500 and other times. Well, you've got mm-hmm. a lot of people who are not yet – their brains haven't developed yet. That's right. Or my father's favorite phrase, what were you thinking? Exactly. <laughs> and, and that's the point. They weren't thinking. They were thinking with the brain that they had. And the last portion of the brain to come online is the prefrontal cortex. And that's our appropriateness of behavior, our, our self-motivation. It's our higher executive function. And until that portion of the brain comes totally online, then I'm not dealing with certain, certain faculties. Now, I look like an adult. I'm bigger than my parents. Our parents want us to be responsible. They want to treat us more responsibly. But at the same time, our brain is not fully developed. And technically, we are an adult at the age of 25 when the long bones in our body stop growing long. At that point, development is over. And my personal motto is keep them alive to 25. Keep them alive to 25. (laughs) I don't even know how validating that is because I've said so many times, you know, as I recall, you're kind of crazy until you're about 25. And then for some reason, it's like you're okay again. Yeah. Then you start making different kinds of decisions because you're you're working with the whole the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Brad, Brad, you know. Yeah, Brad, you're I'm in the middle of the world. I made a lot of stupid decisions after 25, too. So I'm not just, personally, I may not be the person to talk about that. But, um, yeah, there, for, there, there might be people listening right now who are just like, okay, that's it. And, and this is very clinical. And so at 25, then yeah. now they're adults. Uh, 
Biologically. I, 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 I need to speak for the youth that I serve. I didn't say serve. emotionally. <laughs> no, I said biologically. <laughs> because I, I know right now uh, that, I, that we have at least a few kids who are listening because I posted it up on my Facebook to, to listen today. And they're going to say, I know plenty of folks who are 30 and 35 who are remarkably irrational. And most of them are in the Indiana State House right now. I, I, but, I, I, I'm going to back to <laughs> biologic. I did not say yeah. emotionally. Right. Emotional system never matures. The emotional system, cells in our yeah. brain, they never mature. So, you know, you can be 50 and still act like a two-year-old. Yeah. Well, you you yeah. still have that programming. Yeah. You can still make those bad decisions. But from a biological perspective, at that point, you got what you got. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I understand that. But I'm, I, I guarantee yeah. you the first thing I'm going to hear when I get back to the club today is, why didn't you stick up for us? There's adults who are just bad as us. <laughs> oh, I'm not against yeah. teenagers. I love yeah. the teenager. And that's why I'm talking about the teenage brain, because I think the teenager gets a bad rap in our society. It's like, oh oh, my God, I got a teenager. And it's like, no, you got a teenager. This is the golden opportunity for you to say, okay, let's figure out who do you want to be in your 20s and your 40s and your 80s. And we have tools now through mindfulness, and we understand neuroplasticity, the ability of the cells to recreate, renew circuitry and new communication. And we're actually capable of growing some new, new, new neurons, which we didn't know before. We have an opportunity here. And when we look at the teenage brain as an opportunity, opportunity, that's very different than looking at it as, oh, please, let this phase get no. past us. Mm-hmm. I, I don't yeah. know how many times someone has t- yeah. told me, I don't know how, well, you just said there's there's a special place in heaven for you for doing this for 20 years. Yeah. Well, there I, is. I, I, I love doing <laughs> that. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I, I, ride. I love it. That's um, right. I, I never thought this was going to be my career, but now it is going to have to carry me out of there in a box. Now yeah. I can't imagine doing anything else. Oh, it's exciting. Um, yeah. Well, I think I mean, one of the one of the beauties of this is that while these young people are still developing, they they have no fear of. That's I right. mean, in a lot of ways, they have no fear of failure. They have no fear of trying something new. They're very innovative, creative. I mean, you know, you get to be. 25, 35, 45, and a lot of times you're like, well, I don't know. That might, I might get hurt if I try that. Or mm-hmm. I might, you know, I'm just not, I'm not going to go water skiing because right. I've never done it and I'm 30 years old and why would I start now, you know? But when people are younger. Bob, you look great for 30. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> but you're right. You know, the, the wow. that's, that's again, that's, that's the beauty of the teenage brain is it's open to possibility. That's the whole point of the teenagers is to be open to possibility. And, and, you know, it is. It's exciting and it's interesting. And you get to play with these kids when they really are at this maximum opportunity. And the, the great thing about rhinos, too, is that we don't see them in an educational setting, <clears throat> excuse me, we don't see them in a an institutional setting. We, the, the kids who come to Rhinos for after school programs or on the weekends are there because they want to be. Right. Mm-hmm. So we we literally get to see a different. I mean, I can uh, I and my staff can see things that parents don't see, the school mm-hmm. counselors don't see. Uh, and usually they're much more positive. And they're much more awake. Yeah, I was yeah. just going to say, interestingly, yeah. you yeah. get them later in the day, right. too, which is probably when they're more in their <clears throat> mental prime than any right. of their educators well, they're you know yeah. traditional educators uh, are dealing with that. Yeah. And, and Brad, the you know you've been working with teenagers for 21 years now. You said yeah. rhinos. So how do you think they've changed as a group, or do you think they've stayed pretty much exactly the same? This is the favorite question I ever get. Uh-huh. Is I'll go speak to a service club or wherever, and someone will say it must be so much harder to be a kid now than it used to be, or you know there, there's all these different things. And my answer is always the same: is it's always difficult to be an adolescent. It's mm-hmm. never been easy. Mm-hmm. Um, the influences are different. You know, the, the the nouns used in the sentence to describe them change, but, you know, from outside. But it's still the same thing. There's still the same questioning. There's still the same development. There's still who I am. Where's my place? You know, where am I going? I, I want to be an adult, yet I still don't want to leave. I mean, all those sorts of things are still there. The same thing happened when I was a kid. Uh, when when folks in the 40s were teenagers, you know, in the in the 19th century, they were working by that time. So, you know, it's mm-hmm. a little different. But well, kids aren't any different. I mean, you talk about, well, their drugs now are different. And, well, there was drugs when I was yeah. a teenager back, yeah. you know, in the, the late 70s, early 80s, mm-hmm. too. The, the names were different, but they were still just as dangerous. Mm-hmm. Some of the names aren't different. You know, there's nicotine is still there. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. you know alcohol is still there, which are the two main you know, abuse substances by teenagers anyway. Mm-hmm. So there really isn't any difference. It it may be harder for us to relate to them because these other, you know, social media and 
movies and what, what they get off of um, the internet now are, are things that folks in our age never had, couldn't have, you know, well, now you know, you're opening to people in their homes and they can chat with whoever, you know, by the way, and you don't know who that is. And that's true. I mean, there's scary people out there. But also there are kids who are in trouble who can find a network of people out there just like them, mm-hmm. you know. 600 miles away, that would have never happened when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. You know, the, you're not, the, those kids aren't as alone as some of those kids used to feel. Mm-hmm. So, I can remember being yeah. a teenager. I mean, it's been a long time ago, but you know, talking on the telephone mm-hmm. for hours and hours. I mean, everybody wanted to connect, mm-hmm. but now it's just the world mm-hmm. of who you can connect with yeah. has grown mm-hmm. a great deal. Yeah. So we're talking about the teenage brain today on Noon Edition. If you want to join us, 855-0811-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. Brad, I want to talk – I want to ask also about rhinos and about how, you know, your programming has expanded since 21 years ago <laughs> yeah, by yeah, agree, an yeah. enormous amount. And, and a lot of time, I mean, you're, you're – you're providing um, avenues for kids to go into creative creative pursuits. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, um, our after school, we started as a one-night-a-week music club. Uh, you know, there was a group of, of 12 kids who wanted to go see punk rock shows, basically. And Harmony School and the Monroe County Prosecutor's Office got together and, and started this one-night-a-week uh, you know, punk rock venue uh, that everyone was sure was going to be gone in six months, like every other all-ages club. The difference was that this was a nonprofit and that it was run by the youth themselves. And so that's – and so everything to where we are now in a, in a nice, huge facility with a digital media studio with our own uh, weekly five-hour radio show and uh, the YouTube channel and the digital arts and the silk screening and the uh, mural arts. And there, we just started a sewing workshop where, where kids – and we got some sewing machines donated so kids would learn to sew and do stuff. And all those things that now happen – happened because there was a young person who said, I would really like to put out a newspaper. And so now we have a zine. We, you know, my job has been to find a way to make that happen. You know, find partners in the community or find someone and make that happen for them and just kind of step back and watch. And there's a, a great video that, that the kids just did just promoting rhinos. Every, you know, every few years we'll do a new rhinos promotional video. And you know, they interview each other. And the one, it was a, it was a young man. I was like, you know, in art class, if I do something in school and they say it's wrong and I have to go back and do it again, no one has ever told me what I did art-wise here was wrong. Mm-hmm. They just went, hey, that's cool. Yeah. And we, we hung it up on the, on the display board. Uh, and so I think that that's what we allow in Rhinos, our approach is that it's their place. Mm-hmm. They'll run it. You know, the, the editorial board for their little newspaper is just the same as the group that does the radio show, gets together every week, and just makes their decisions. And I've had people come back who've gone through ACOR here in the business school or through the military, and now they're adults that come back and go, you know what? Nothing was as hard as that time we sat down and tried to come up with a, a manual you know, for how we're going to operate the radio show and you know, what are our rules <laughs> going to be. Um, that, that really prepared me for doing all those other things. And we don't expect it, Rhinos, to have – uh, people who make their career as artists or make their career uh, in radio or TV or silk screening, they, they can be. I mean, you get those skills. What we hope is that they've taken that dis- group decision-making, that creativity, and literally uh, prepare themselves for the world that they're going to go into better. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going to have to take a short break. We're, uh, we're talking about the teenage brain today on Noon Edition with Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor and Brad Wilhelm from Rhinos. Uh, we'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU with you by downloading our podcast directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. 
<laughs> Welcome back to Noon Edition. We're having a spirited conversation here. And, uh, <laughs> you during, know, it's a good show break. when everybody I has to it. shush we, each other to get back on the air. I know. So we are talking about the teenage brain today. Uh, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Mary Catherine Carmichael is here. And we have Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor and Brad Wilhelm, who's the director of Rhinos. Jill is uh, a neuroanatomist. We've had her on the show many times before. We'll, have, we'll make her tell her story here in a little bit because <laughs> there may be some people that don't know her amazing story, and we, we have and to do And they that. need to read her book. Then. That's right. And so if you have questions or comments, phone us at 855-0811-877-285-9348. And you can join a live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. We're going to go right to the phones, though, because we have our first phone call today, and it's uh, Dana. Dana, go ahead. Hi. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on the program. Good. Yeah, I really enjoy Dr. Taylor's work, and I'm curious uh, to know more about what goes on at Rhinos, because every time I drive by it, I ask myself, I wonder what they really do. In <laughs> Come on to, in. You know, uh, well, maybe I have to do that. Yeah. Well, I have a, a simple question, and then I'll get off the, the, off the phone here to hear your answer. But I'm really curious about the effects of different kinds of trauma on the development of the teenage brain, thinking specifically about either traumas of neglect or sexual trauma. I'm just wondering how, when those are experienced in the teenage years, how that might impact brain development. Mm-hmm. Wow, great question. Good question. I, I would add to that even something like divorce. You know, right. Yeah. So, Jill? When, you know, when you look at the brain, uh, the cerebral cortex is divided into the outer layers of higher cognitive thinking, which is that prefrontal cortex stuff that we were talking about. But then it's also the emotional limbic system. And the cells of the limbic system, there are several groups of cells in there that have specific functions. And one is the amygdala, and the amygdala is um, our response for fear and rage. And those, those cells are always asking the question, am I safe? In this moment right here, sitting here, am I safe? And my brain determines if I feel safe based on how much of the information streaming in through my sensory systems feels familiar, which then I have to say what rhinos would provide is a safe space where kids feel familiar, they feel safe, they can be creative, they can be themselves, and they can live their lives, and they they can then relate. When it comes to trauma, the, the, the limbic system cells never mature. And so we always have this little person inside of us, even though we have a higher cognitive mind. Emotionally, we will often be, uh, we, will, we will stop growing emotionally at the level of the trauma. So mm-hmm. if I'm sexually abused as a child, then I am still hooked into that circuitry. Does that mean that I don't have the ability to get out of that or to grow with appropriate therapies? or with medications, probably, I can grow. The The beauty of this brain is that it is constantly growing and constantly changing. But it does respond to trauma. Physical trauma will result in, in um, uh, connective tissue problems or different kinds of blockage of the cells communicating with one another. But at the same time, we have to then ask ourselves emotionally, how has this individual been, been impacted? And how do we provide support? And, and I'm Brad, I'm sure this is what you deal with all the time because you're dealing with kids who are are living lives, you know, family life is family life, and then they come to you and you become a safe space. I, I, I wish I could say that we've never had to call Child Protective Services or that, you know, we've never had to deal with these kinds of things or refer them uh, to other services, but I can't. I mean, mm-hmm. that that's a, a regular occurrence. It's not the number one, but yeah, I mean, you, you see that. I mean, and that's just unfortunately... You know, part of, part of the job, and uh, you try to make sure. You know, I'm I'm not licensed, or, or our, our staff aren't licensed clinicians or, or or psychologists or healthcare professionals. So you just try to get them to the services they need, and sometimes that means separating them from their family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully, Rhinos is seen as a safe place. Mm-hmm. Like you said, um, almost um, you know, if they they don't feel like they can talk to their guidance counselor about it, or they don't feel that they can talk to a family member. Often we'll see them come into rhinos and want myself or someone from the staff uh, will hear the story or we'll pick up something different in their behavior, whether they're acting out some way or they're being withdrawn and, you know, just asking what's going on and and bringing that kind of stuff out. Um, You know, I obviously can't speak to how that affects the brain, you know, how trauma affects the brain physically. I I can tell you how, you know, it does emotionally. Mm -hmm. And and you you can see it almost immediately Mm -hmm. by their behavior. Mm -hmm. Either it's a, you get withdrawn or 
they start, um, you know, that's when they start abusing substances or that's when, you know, mm-hmm. from all those gamuts of usually comes from some sort of traumatic event that's happened to them. Mm-hmm. That you can, and, and divorce might be one of those two. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the... Um, right. And, and it does go back to the I don't feel safe. And when I don't feel safe as a society, you know, biologically, we are feeling creatures who think. Mm-hmm. Most of us think about ourselves as thinking creatures who feel, but we are feeling creatures who think. And we live in a society that values what we think over what we feel. Mm-hmm. And so we're kind of set up for not feeling an emotional satisfaction in relationship to the external world unless our immediate environment has purposely created that kind of a safe safe space for us. And so what do we do? We mask our pain with addiction. Mm-hmm. And so whether it's going to be a, a drug, a sex, a technology, a food, whatever our addiction is, this is how we, we do this self-medication. Uh, you just mentioned technology, and that's come up a couple times in our discussion so far. I know um, I, as well as a lot of other parents of teenagers, am so interested in the screen time and the developing brain it just from a gut parental instinct it just is this kind of oh i don't feel good about this this is just right. you know so what, what what's the truth of the matter or, or where has research uh led us so far as far as screen time in the teenage brain well with any brain with any circuitry brain cells respond in circuit to one another and the more you stimulate a circuit the more that circuit will start to run automatically and it creates habitual thinking and habitual circuitry inside of our brain so you have to consider that every ability we have we have because we have cells that perform that function. So if I'm into technology, 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 well, that circuitry is really running very powerfully in my brain, and it wants to dominate. And so it does. It begins to run and run and run. And when other other interests or other possibilities come in, it fights for its right. It's like a little group of people. It's going to fight for its right mm. to do what it wants to do. And so helping people, anybody, any age deal with, with, you know, what is an addiction? An addiction essentially is when we turn on one of these sets of circuitry and it just runs and runs and runs and we don't, you know, I, only I can take responsibility for the circuitry running inside of my brain. But I can certainly set myself up for success or set myself up for failure in what what parts of my brain then do I bring online and say, you know, this is an unreasonable amount of time going on. What can what else can I do? How do I help create more balance inside of my brain so that I am a more balanced person? Mm-hmm. All right, we have a phone call and it's Wayne. Go ahead, Wayne. Hi. Hi. About the operation of the brain when you don't feel safe, you were talking about that part of the brain that asks, am I safe? And I notice when people go into a medical facility, (laughs) they are in a brand new environment. It's foreign to them. The doctor is doing funny things to them that they don't understand. They're probably a little apprehensive. It might involve pain. And then the doctor gives them a briefing. The doctor, you know, gives them some instructions, and they go home, and they have not heard any of those instructions. They don't remember a thing the doctor said. Is there anything connected? (laughs) Can you connect us? Those are that is exact. That's a beautiful example of what goes in on when because we, again we're feeling creatures who think. And if our amygdala is saying I don't feel safe, then I move into self-preservation, alert, alert, not safe, not safe, and I shut down my my hippocampal cells, which are also a part of that limbic system, which are there for learning and memory. And so I have to really feel safe in order to be able to learn and memorize. And so this is why you know it's a beautiful example, and this is. <laughs> another reason why you should always take a family member or a friend with you when you're going into these kinds of situations. But test anxiety for kids. This is exactly what's going on. The amygdala is saying, I don't feel safe. I'm, I don't feel safe. Self-preservation, self-preservation, alert, alert, alarm, alarm, oh my gosh. And the hippocampus cells can't turn on and then so that you can get the answers out that you know that you already have because you studied for this exam. And a lot of times if a teenager goes to the doctor for whatever reason and they're there, they have a parent with them. Right. So there, I think that very same happens with teenagers too, but there is an adult who's there, uh, whoever their guardian is, to make sure that they do follow those doctor's instructions and, mm-hmm. and they're not in that same sort of. Mm-hmm. And, and 
Doctors being doctors ought to be aware that maybe they need to uh, submit their instructions in writing so that the patients can read them after they get home and feel secure. Or put them right. up online. That's right. <laughs> Have an email that'll That's send right. for the younger people. Yeah, right. If this, then that. Wayne, yeah. thanks a lot for the call. <laughs> All right. If you have a call or if you have a question or a comment, 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Um, I want to know how important both of you feel it is uh, for the teenage teenage I'm just not going to say the teenage brain all day, but for teenagers, <laughs> for teenagers. Um, to be a member of various groups external to the family. Is there a brain reason, a brain-related reason why that would be an important um, thing to have happen? For example, um, you know, uh, be involved in, in orchestra or in a sporting um, endeavor or that sort of thing, church, whatever, whatever you're into. Well, from from my perspective, just from a, a neurological perspective, sure, I want kids to use their body. When you pump your body, you're pumping blood into your brain. It makes the brain happy. Uh, I want that circuitry developed. Uh, music is absolutely phenomenal for both hemisphere development. I want that circuitry developed. Uh, you know, my mom says, you know, I do my crossword puzzle, crossword puzzle. I say, well, mom, that circuitry is great, but what about all the other circuitry in there? There's a lot of other things. And so I think exposure during the teenage years, well, really to anybody, any of us at any age, we need diversity, and we mm-hmm. are socialized creatures. And the you know, uh, there's so much research done now on socialization and how much stimulation we need in order to really be healthy, happy people. Uh, so, so whatever age we are. And then I think uh, an organization like Rhinos provides a structure for kids to be able to go and do well, all kinds of different things. That's why we exist. I mean, quite literally, uh, for most of the kids we see. And, and once again, I'm generalizing. You, you can't really do it. Are, are kids who don't fit in sort of traditional sort of programming. Uh, they're, they're not the ones at their church youth group or, or on a sports team or on student council. I mean, these are mm-hmm. kids who really need rhinos. And you can see in how dedicated they are to what goes on there. We now have a group from the Banneker Center who's being bussed over uh, every afternoon. And they really need rhinos. They love the audio studio, you know, and come in and being able to, to use the technology to create music and create beats. And, um, I mean, you see it. You see that change. If, if we can see a kid for a year or two, you see that socialization that they get, they, they come out stronger. I mean, mm-hmm. you can just see it. Um, we, ha- we have a, a question from our live chat. Uh, Kevin wants to know, how well does the brain heal? Well, I think I'm a great living example. This will get us into yeah. it. Now, I, I should say before before Jill answers, I, yeah. I, you know, our, my introduction of her was very very short uh, today. But you know, Jill Bolte Taylor is, as I said, the author of My Stroke of Insight. When she's going to tell you sort of what that story is, uh, she also I don't know what year it was, but she was one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people in the world. Is it 2010? Eight. Eight? 2008? Yeah. You've been influential a long time. Then. For a little while. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that was when I was one of people's sexiest 50 70s people. Was that, <laughs> that, that, right. yeah. Now, you were, yeah, Brad. Yeah. That it was 08, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right. So, uh, okay. Yeah. How well does the brain okay. heal? Okay. So, uh, my, my story in a nutshell, I was a brain scientist at Harvard. I was 37 years old. I grew up to study the brain because I had a brother diagnosed with a brain disorder, schizophrenia. Uh, so I was fascinated with the brain, and then at age 37, I woke up one day and experienced a major hemorrhage in the left hemisphere of my brain. In four hours, I could not walk, talk, read, write, or recall any of my life. It's been 17 years now. Everybody's doing their math. Um, <laughs> tomorrow is my birthday. It's so exciting. So thank you. So, um, so you know, for me, the brain has the ability to recover. I think that the biggest mistake that happens is that as soon as someone says, well, after three months or six months, forget it, you're not going to get it back, anything back anymore, that's just not so. And because in the last 10 to 15 years, we've learned about neurogenesis, the ability of the brain to grow some new neurons, particular in response to trauma, and second of all, uh, neuroplasticity, the ability of cells to realign who they're communicating with. So I th- personally, I'm, I think the brain can heal pretty well. Yeah. 
You just got to set it up for success. And there are certain things that you can do to set it up for success. I don't want this to sound like Mary Catherine brain pet peeve day. But (laughs) uh, (laughs) another issue that is um, of concern to me and has been for a long time is um, sports, especially um, really hard contact sports and teenagers and the effect on the brain. I told my son from very early on, don't expect to be allowed to play football because you're simply not going to be allowed to play football simply because of the potential in my eyes, right. for brain injury. Absolutely. What's your take on that? Oh, it's obvious. Uh, uh, you know, I've been working with some some of the major um, national football players, and these guys are going through major trauma. It's obvious. It is true. It is real. We understand that when the brain experiences a trauma, if it is not given an opportunity to heal completely, and instead there's another trauma mm-hmm. added on top of that, it just becomes exponentially a bigger problem. And and you have mm-hmm. we are experiencing all kinds of major depression, major depression, major dementia mm-hmm. in individuals. You know, boxing. What is? Th- what are you doing? You know, what are you thinking? <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, I'm with you. It's my. I mean, it just makes zero sense to me. Uh, but I also understand that the modern technology is coming out with some tools where. Uh, um, individuals will be able to be tested on the sideline to be able to actually look at the wave activity of what's going on in the brain to determine whether or not this person really did experience a concussion. And if so, let's establish some rules and some structures so that we are actually nurturing and playing a game instead of beating our brains up. Mm-hmm. I feel a little vindicated. Thank you very much. <laughs> hey, we, we have a phone call, and it's Jane and Terre Haute. Jane? Hi. Hi, go ahead. Thank you. Um, I have a question for Jill. Um, Recently, three friends of Jokard Janayas have been identified as helping him following the the bombing. Um, When I heard about this, the first thing that I thought of was teenage brain. (laughs) I was wondering if Jill could comment on those three individuals and perhaps what she knows about how they made their decisions based on her research? You know, that's a tough one because the same behaviors are acted out by adults. Um, and, you know, the, the, the beauty and the problem with the teenage brain is that it is open to any possibilities. And when you look at how we establish our belief structures and our belief systems and how we then act out in the world based on those things, there's a certain level of invincibility that goes with being a teenager, and uh, as well as the high risk. And, and the whole crusade, you know, there, I need meaning in my life. I'm trying to figure out who I am. I'm I'm hopefully being exposed to to certain circumstances that are are really develop me, developing me in a positive way. But when you look at at the, the the brain and its relationship to trust and its relationship to hate and to love and uh, it, it, and to religion and different religions and whether I look at you and I see you as the same or I see you as different. Uh, it, you know, the brain's a very complicated place, so I cannot blame any of that on, on the, you know, the phenomenon of teenageness. I think it's just the way that circuitry happens. And, and what we are exposed to, again, is what grows inside of our circuitry, and what we run gets stronger. And if, there's, if, if we're not watching and paying attention to what's going on inside of our brain, and we are, you know, one of my favorite things to say is, is instead of reacting, uh, observe instead of engage. I can observe what's going on inside of my brain without acting it out and running and engaging that circuitry. I can actually pay attention to what's going on and think about that. And to me, that's the beauty of mindfulness and the beauty of understanding that I have two hemispheres. So there are really two different ways of looking at the world. There are two different parts of me. One can actually observe the other. And if I don't like what's going on or what circuitry I'm running, I have an opportunity to to say, I don't like the way that this feels. I want to do things differently, and can I do that consciously? And through mindfulness, we know we can change our thoughts and change our brains. Mm-hmm. So hey, thank you, Jane. Brad, I want to ask you a, a related question. What, what, what went on at the club the day of the Boston Marathon bombing? And then maybe even you know the day that the, the, the suspects were identified and um, you had uh, the kids were glued to the computer screens. We have a, a different. We used to have um, cable, so we had a TV with cable news, and we we took that out 
uh, just because kids were just sitting there watching TV instead. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but so everyone then was tuned to uh, on their screens watching CNN and following it. And uh, uh, it, it was a very somber time because it happened uh, in the morning. So as kids came in that afternoon, uh, you know, everyone kind of gravitated to, you know, what are we looking for? And they were, to a person, everyone very concerned uh, about what happened, who it was. You know, everyone had their own theory about, you know, who this could have been and why they did it. And um, it it was a community thing. I I also remember um, the Columbine shooting. Very, very clearly, the Columbine shooting, we had a large group of young people, some who had left school that day, who came to Rhinos because they were so upset. And there was a group of about 30 of us just sat watching the TV and watching that going on. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that sense of community, I think, that they come together. When something horrible and tragic happens, I think we all need to connect to to someone else that we're in a safe place, and especially adolescents. And mm-hmm. so that's yeah. what has happened. We, we had a, a, a couple weeks ago, we had a, a 25-year-old who had been at the Boston Marathon and run in the Boston Marathon. She was – it was in the Friday after, and it was interesting because she talked about how, you know, she she said, you know, she her, she's grown up with – Nine Eleven, Columbine, mm-hmm. Sandy Hook, uh, now the Boston Marathon, and that yeah, it's a horrible thing. But but in that generation, they've almost come to expect those things to happen. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 I think they might expect it to happen, mm-hmm. but it's how it happens is, yeah. is the difference. You don't expect <clears throat> at a marathon mm-hmm. in a group of people. You don't expect right. to see pictures of people with their legs and an eight-year-old boy being killed mm-hmm. from, from this kind of thing. I think that's where. Yeah. Um, at least from from the youth I saw at Rhinos, yeah. they, they may expect that kind of, you know, anyone who says that kids are desensitized to violence because of video games mm-hmm. didn't see the look on their faces when they were seeing those images. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and I want to say our our previous guest I can't remember her name I'm sorry but um, she was very serious about all this. She wasn't you know passing mm-hmm. it off as well. Those things happen. It yeah. Wasn't no, yeah, I understand all. that. But yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It, if do we have time for me to get into my my my. After we take a phone call. Okay, great. All right, John's on the phone. John, go ahead. Hi, I've been uh, reading Jared Diamond's The World Until Yesterday, which uh, Diamond, who is an anthropologist, wrote to suggest that there are ways that traditional societies have done things that we might want to consider better than what we're doing, uh, and vice versa, that our uh, unrepresentative culture, unrepresentative of most of human history, um, might have things that are better than what hunter-gatherers and um, farming cultures did. Uh, and there are aspects of that book that deal with learning how, how um, kids in hunter-gatherer uh, clans, for example, learn and the uh, amazing cognitive abilities that anthropologists have seen in them. So my question is, to what degree are the generalizations about the teenage brain that we're talking about uninformed by a cross-cultural research that involves people from uh, pre-modern cultures? Uh, and if we don't have that kind of information, are we? Do we really know what we're talking about? Jill, do we know what we're talking about? <laughs> I don't know. I'm glad I'm, you went to Jill on that. Not I, I don't have any idea if we know what we're talking about. You know, I think what's new is that we do have a clue. I mean, the neuroscience is relatively new. The behavior is, of course, not new. The socialization is not new. Uh, the big picture is not new. Um, what is new is how we now understand from a neuroanatomical uh, system what's going on and why it's going on, and then are there things that we could learn from cultures in past about compassion and about how to relate to this population as a bigger society. At the same time, when you look at society and how fast society moves forward, we're catching our tail just to keep up with ourselves. So uh, I think that's an enormous question that we should have dinner over. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I, I wanted to keep talking. There was a lot of going on in there. I was, was, I was learning yeah. from All right, we have three minutes to go. Brad, the stage is yours. I, I wanted to, I, since I had Jill here, I wanted to talk about nicotine and its effect on um, 
mm-hmm. the teenage brain into coming through. Because uh, one of the other things I do is I do anti-tobacco work with youth groups across the state. And the more information we get from uh, the CDC and from the, the Surgeon General is that the tobacco companies have known, and they've known for decades, the development in the brain and how nicotine changes the synapses in the brain and how they spike their product to increase the amount of nicotine. And so I, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, in your experience with the development of young brains mm-hmm. and how nicotine works. You know, I, I think that the problem is um, it's not just nicotine. A cigarette is filled with all kinds of poisons. And as we inhale that, not just into our lungs, which then send it into our bloodstream, the impact that it's having on the lungs is not good. The impact that it's having on on taking oxygen out of the blood is another issue. And then on top of that, then you add the chemicals that you are now putting into your bloodstream, one of which is nicotine. And and. So there's, it's a very complicated pollution of the entire body and the entire brain. And then you deal with the tar, and the tar on top of it acts like mud sludge between cells so that everything functions at an erratic level. Um, I don't like smoking cigarettes I, as far as, as, um, as a drug is concerned bec- for all of those reasons, not simply because of nicotine and what nicotine does to the brain. It's very complicated. All right. We have one minute to go. What's yeah. new with the movie? Uh, okay. New with the movie is uh, we're working with a new group, um, and uh, hopefully magic will happen. We still have high hopes, uh, and it looks like um, Julia Roberts may play me. And all I can say is <laughs> she'll make me friendly, and the girl can cackle. So, <laughs> so, you know, hopefully. But that's where we're at. All right. Yeah. Okay. And so uh, thank you very much, Jill Bolte-Taylor. It's always great to have you here. Always Brad Wilhelm, always great to see you. Pleasure. And Mary Catherine, thank you. It's always great to see you, too. Thank you, Mary we Catherine. Love, we, we love our Fridays. <laughs> All right. Yes, and so thank you to everybody, is, including producers Gretchen Frazee and Emily Wright, as well as engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.